Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Jim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Blammy. That's on, that's on the air. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we start every episode. I press the button and say, Blammy. Are you going to cut that? No. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to episode 68 of Weekly Weights. I'm Alex Hayes. With me is Will. And with us today is Jess Suistenko. So Jess is one of Australia's best lifters. Well, actually, currently Australia's best lifter. She competes in the under 58 kilo class. Um, her best total is 436 kilos at under 58, um, which gave her 511 Wilkes points. So that made her the second female ever in powerlifting Australia to cross the 500 Wilkes. Um, she's a city strength sponsored athlete, Samtech sponsored athlete, powerlifting coach at Alpha Athletes, um, and she's studying physio. Welcome to the show. Nailed what, it. Thanks, what did I miss? Did I miss anything? No, I think you did really well. It's very comprehensive. Cool. So we wanted to talk to Jess predominantly about her training and about her um, competitive history and all of that kind of stuff. So let's start right back at the start of your life. So as a child, what was your sporting background like when you were younger? Um, I guess going all the way back, I've always been really sporty. So in school, dating back to like kindergarten, I was always the classic, you know, cross-country athletics, was involved with all that. Um, Originally, I always had my hand in everything. So when it comes to like your PWSA, so like team sports, I'd always be playing something, whether it be Oztag or cricket or Newcomb ball back then. It was like volleyball, but you catch it instead of hit it back over. Do you guys ever play that? Newcomb ball? Yeah. Named after John Newcomb? Pretty sure he played <laughs> tennis or something. I don't know. No, probably no. not. It's like volleyball, but you catch it instead of hit it. It was like full because we were really retarded with our hands as little kids. Hey, you just catch it and throw it back. Well, there's probably um, something as well when you like. Sorry, we we're, we're no, already getting off topic. <laughs> but I can just imagine little kids being a bit too frail to like actually be hitting a ball hard with their hands, and you got to teach them to like catch anyway, right? But like if you were bashing a ball with your hands when you were a kid, you'd probably just end up like bruising your thumbs. Is eh? that just like an extended like set in? Volleyball, yeah, it's you know, just when like you set, you like kind yeah. of like cup it and throw it back. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. just like that. Exactly, yeah. actually catch it, catch okay. it, and throw yeah. it back over. And then when you drop it, the other team gets a point. Weekly weights, a new ball challenge happening in the next month. I'll beat Will in any sport. <laughs> I was more thinking we would challenge oh, right. peak speak or peak something. Speak? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. fuck those guys, by the way. Should we <laughs> challenge him to like two on two basketball or something? Uh, no, we'll lose that. Oh, actually, I'll, no, okay. I'll just dish to you. Okay, the team. <laughs> All right. So you played Newcomb ball, you yeah. played cricket, you played... Played heats of footy, um, did a lot of long distance running, cross-country running. Um, as I sort of went to high school, I got um, selected to attend Westfield Sports High in Sydney because um, I grew up in Fairfield, so I'm Sydney born and bred. Um, I went as a long distance runner, as a long track runner as well. So my events were generally 3,000 metre plus um, and did a whole lot of cross-country, which is completely weird, like looking at what I do now. Um, so I did that until I was like 15. Um, so I did that for quite a long time. Um, I guess like achievements wise for that the biggest thing I ever did was probably the city to surf um, I think I was 12 it was back in 2007 um, and I ran it in an hour 20 so that was sort of where I was at in terms of um, running uh, I also did a lot of karate so karate I started when I was 10 uh, I started off my dad shoved me into it because we grew up in Fairfield so a lot of um, violence and a lot of 
um, issues around that area, so he wanted us to have some self-defense skills. So he sent my, me and my brother off to karate. Um, we found this instructor who was very disciplined, very strict. He thought, if anything, we'll get defense skills, but we'll also become really disciplined, resilient out of the training. Um, so we met some friends doing that, and I stuck with that for a very long time. I did karate for about, it would have been probably 10 years and eight of those I competed. So I did that for a really extensive period of time. And then outside that moved into footy and ended up in powerlifting. So that's a very extensive sporting background. Um, what kind of footy? Uh, a hand in everything. So as a kid, I started off in a lot of tag, a lot of league tag. So pretty much football, but with the tags on the side, you don't tackle. Yep. Um, eventually when I sort of got out of high school and moved around I got my hand into rugby union because at the time rugby league wasn't generally offered to women back in like 2014-15 so I was living at Canberra in the time and I played for Canberra Royals and the women's Brumbies side then um, so I played a couple years with those guys um, and then I ended up moving away from Canberra and found myself playing a bit of league tag in Bathurst before I moved back to Sydney so I've played a bit of everything. My main passion's in rugby league, which is ironic because I've actually never played rugby league, but had a lot of um, experience playing in union and loved that. So where was the line in childhood where you went from like a participational athlete who was playing Newcomb ball and cricket and stuff to actually taking athletic training seriously and what did serious training for you entail as yeah, a teenager? Um, I'm not too sure when the crossover happened. I never really saw myself as really good at it. I guess I never looked at it that way back then. Um, I was doing karate from the age of 10. I probably started competing a year later, so I probably would have been 11. Um, I started doing state events. Um, my first nationals was in 2015, so I was, I think, 11 at the time, 12, so I was a year or two into karate. Um, and I got my first national title. Well, I got bronze at nationals for a kumite, a sparring event, in 2006. And that was probably the first time I remember being like, hey, I'm not too bad at this, um, and I'm quite young, and I've got a lot of room to move growing up and getting good at the sport so I stuck with karate for a really long time um but I guess in 2006 2007 so that sort of just starting high school period was when I sort of I got into Westfield Sports High for running I felt really you know competitive with that because I was with really good runners at that school um and also my karate was starting to pick up so yeah I felt like I was getting really athletic sort of around that age what other things were you doing in school like were you doing other extracurricular were you academic yeah, uh, I, when I lived in Sydney, I was academic. So we moved um, when I was in year nine and I found, um, not that I got worse with my academics, but my focus went away from it. But when I lived in Sydney, um, I was quite sheltered, just the area we grew up. So it was always, you know, get up, go to school, go to training, come home, study, wake up, do the same. So in terms of social life and having friends and that, it wasn't big for me um, going through the early stages of high school. Um, it was very much parents were forcing me to study, go do my sport, get home, repeat. Um, so that was all pretty full on, yeah, in the early stages of high school. Um, in terms of other um, extracurricular, I used to be a painter, which is really funny. So I used to do oil painting um, and I sold a couple of artworks and I remember I entered a couple of like the Royal Easter Show competitions as a little kid. So I did that one while I was about nine years old, did that for a few years. Um, and then when we moved away from Sydney, I just lost contact with it. Well, yeah. And so what's your family background? You say your parents would shelter you and make you study? Yeah, so my dad's a Belarus man, so he's very just hard Russian, strict, um, always, if you're going to do something, do it 100%. So we didn't like the thought of, you know, me being out at a friend's house when I could be studying or I could be working my ass off training or doing something. So he always never told me I had to do those things, but always generally I felt like I had to, to make him happy. Right. Um, so I'd always find myself behind a book or at training. Um, mum was sort of the same. Mum was more scared of me being out 
you know, at someone's house when she didn't know where I was or just, again, being the area, a lot of stuff going on in Fairfield and a young child, she didn't want me out. Um, right. But, yeah. Yeah, cool. And so at what point did you start lifting weights? Um, probably not until four or five years ago. So um, even though I guess with karate I did end up quite elite in that space, weights in SNC wasn't big back then when I was into karate. So there was no big, um, I guess they didn't really push us to get into the gym. It was just get in the dojo, do your kata, do your kumite, go home. And there wasn't any weights or extracurricular stuff for training-wise they expected us to do. Um, the weight side come into it probably when I went to uni and I met my partner. And he was a footballer, rugby league, classic boys at uni. They want to go to the gym and get big and strong. And I started following him to the gym and just doing your classic little bodybuilding split workouts with him and following him around. And that was probably my first time I got my hands on weights, yeah. And how far into lifting weights did you get introduced to powerlifting? Um, so how long was I in the gym before I started? Or yeah, probably two years, I'd say. Yeah, it wasn't too long. I um I got a feel for it really quickly and become really passionate once I found that I was getting stronger and that's sort of what led me into it. But it wasn't long. It was probably about two years. And when you were playing rugby with the Canberra Royals, is that correct? Yeah. Um, did they have a dedicated SNC regime as well? Yeah, not really. So with the Brumby squad, we did. Um, it, it wasn't really set, but it was like, you know, we want you to get into the gym twice a week and do this sort of training. Um, yep. So we were under a barbell and not heavy. Obviously, for rugby, it's not specific to be one RMing um, for training, but it was getting used to those movements, um, which I felt, yeah, functionally, it built up a really good movement pattern early on. Um, and I was a fly half, so I was one of the lighter ones, so I could generally move a little better than the bigger girls could, so that was really good. Um, but, yeah, not so much with the club stuff. I guess women's sport as well. It's come a long way since a few years ago, but back then it was just turn up the training and play. Yeah, I remember actually when I did weightlifting, which is yonks ago now, 2011, one of the girls who ended up playing for is the Wallaroos is the women's team. Yep. Um, I think her name was Beck, something mm-hmm. Beck. Do you know her? No? Um, anyway, I remember she made a highlights reel for absolutely smashing somebody in a cover tackle at one stage, yeah. maybe five or six years later. But she was coming to this weightlifting club because they didn't have any S&C for her women's rugby club mm-hmm. at the time. And she was just doing stuff with us two or three days a week. And they were like, oh, you know, that'll have to do. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's like to the point where like our club side, we, we had a coach, but that was it. We didn't have a physio. We didn't have a trainer. We didn't have like, it was pretty limited into staff, let alone having S&C itself as another thing. So yeah, sure. yeah, I think things have changed now a little bit, but definitely, yeah, not back then. So who were the first actual powerlifters you were then introduced to? Um, it's funny. I first found out about the sport when I met a friend in Bathurst when I went to uni there. It would have been about 2014, 2015. His name was Ben Russian. Um, so I'm not sure yeah, if you guys have heard Benny. We used to train with Ben at Lyft. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Benny, um, I went to uni with him. We did a um, S&C internship together out of Bathurst, um, the Western Region Academy sport out there. And I knew Ben through that. Um, he was at the time a junior and he was talking about all these records he was going to break and how cool his powerlifting was. And I used to like be really curious about it because I used to always watch him. We had a really tiny little S&C set up at Bathurst and he'd always be in there setting up the bench and doing his bench and watching him squat. I'm like, it looks so technical and pantic. You don't do very much. Like you just sort of do a lift and sit there. Whereas I was used to my bro splits and he used to make me really curious. Anyway, he used to always talk about these records and he used to look at me and be like, you should do it. Like it's so much fun. Um, the girls, like it's, there's not heaps of women involved yet. Like it'd be really cool if you get your hands in it. And I remember just going on the website and looking at all the numbers and I was like, that is ridiculous. Like that is a ridiculous amount of weight. I'm never going to move that. Um, so I just followed his journey for probably a year after that um, before I actually thought about getting involved myself but he was probably the reason 
I first knew about powerlifting, I guess. I didn't know about it before I met him. Um, and then, yeah, I sort of re-found myself back looking into it when I moved to Canberra a year later and, yeah, went from there. So when you moved back to Canberra, you were introduced to Liz? Yeah, and yeah. she was your first coach? She was, yeah. So I did a bit of research. So I moved for work to Canberra in 2016. Um, so it was the Olympic year. I was working at the AIS, so I had the whole SNC gym there um, in my hands that I could use. So I was like, I may as well make the most of this facility. I may as well do something, whether it be weightlifting, powerlifting, whatever it be. I've got all this equipment that I can use, so I may as well do something um, and have a goal for it. Um, so I remember just doing some Googling, um, and Liz's name kept popping up. And I just found that link with powerlifting again, thought of what Ben had been drilling in me for the last year, and I was like, hey, I could actually give this a go now. I'm a little bit stronger. Um, the numbers seem a little bit more realistic where I could be a bit competitive in it. Um, so I actually remember calling Liz one day when I was at work in my lunch break and I was like, Hey, like, would you be happy to coach a newbie? I've never done powerlifting before. And I remember she was just straight to the point. She was like, you know, I can see you being a 57 kilo lifter and we'll break records in two years and we'll do this and we'll do that. And I was like so excited at the time. Oh, like, that sounds like Liz. She yeah. just talked it up. And at the point, like I'm this 70 kilo fat blob who was very untrained um, working out of Canberra. So it was pretty cool to have someone that excited about getting started and getting into it. So I found myself a few days later in her gym doing my first session and yeah, it's pretty cool. So Liz, Liz Craven is obviously one of Australia's most decorated lifters. Mm -hmm. Um, you've since actually broken some of her records, but at the time, um, she was holding records in at least two weight classes in Australia. Mm -hmm. And she was obviously one of our most internationally competitive lifters. How did it make you feel to be talking to somebody like that who was so enthused to have you in the sport? Yeah, I mean, at the time when I called her, I probably didn't appreciate how good she was. Like, I knew she was one of the better ranked lifters in Australia. Her name was popping up on everything, so it seemed like she was a big deal. But didn't realise to that extent what that meant, you know. I just thought, oh, she's really good at what she does, so she'll know a bit about the sport. Um, looking back, when I got into it a lot more, I started to really appreciate, like, holy cow, like, this is Liz Craven, you know, people die to see her, like, that's really cool. Um, and I remember really early on, she was teaching me, you know, to sumo deadlift, and I kept thinking, like, one day, like, I'm going to beat your record. Like, that's my all-time goal. I want to beat you one day. And I used to always tell her to her, I used to be like, I'm going to beat you one day. That's my all-time goal. And she used to just laugh at me, and I used to think, one day I will. <laughs> one day I will. Um, so that's always been really fun to try and chase. But, yeah, I guess I didn't appreciate it heaps at the time. But definitely looking back, I'm super appreciative that she popped up. So what types of numbers – you said your numbers had improved. Yeah. What types of numbers were you shifting when you first contacted her? Yeah, so when I first contacted her, I was doing <laughs> – probably four weeks before I contacted her, I just Googled a strength program and I just started a 531 program just for something to see what would happen. Um, so when I called her, my best squat was probably a 110, my best bench was probably 60, and my best deadlift was probably about a 140. So that was sort of with no proper training or coaching, just sort of my own experience. Yeah. So it wasn't too bad. No, yeah. they certainly. And what about at your when? So when did you actually do your first meet, and how did you go all your numbers? Yeah, sure. So I called Liz um, and started training with her September, um, and then we pretty much straight away booked in a meet for it was I think their Christmas challenge in December that year. So it was I think two and a bit months. I think it might have been ten weeks of prep um i was weighing 69 kilos at the time i think it was, so was 69 69 kilos yeah, i was a heavy little little doozy i used to eat thai food and like enjoy really embrace the canberra lifestyle yeah um 69 kilos um and then in that meet i ended up making 63 so we dropped down the weight class it didn't take too much i was eating like a pig um so i got to 63 um, I remember my squat was 132 and a half, my bench was 70, and my deadlift was 160. So, so massive gains. 
yeah, massive newbie gains, which was really awesome, really exciting. I think it come down to just a like a proper program, having that constant, you know, just something to follow. Whereas I was before just going online and trying to max out every day, which is what I still do. But um, I was doing it unstructured before, um, and just yeah, having her advice with the technique changes and that sort of thing, I think were the big things. So you've already sort of alluded to it, but how did your mindset in training change when you actually were introduced to structured coaching? Um, it put it at ease I'm quite a organized in my head I need to be organized I'm quite OCD with I need to know what I'm doing before I start and I need to know when I'm going to do it and if you look at my calendar or anything like I'm super organized so not knowing what I was going to do kind of threw me off during sessions because I wasn't sure where I was working to or how much I should have been lifting and I was sort of doubting what I was doing whereas if I had someone I knew like Liz who was telling me what to do and there was structure to that I just felt reassured what I was doing was going to work so definitely had more confidence going into those sessions I guess. Right and if you were listening to this podcast either yourself as a complete newbie or just somebody who was looking at you as like an aspirational figure what types of things would you say to somebody just beginning powerlifting? Like what would be important in their attitude? Yeah, I guess attitude wise, just be confident in yourself and seek out help if you're not sure, because I think that helped me a lot personally. So even though I have the necessary background and qualifications to have a a general idea about what to do, it was still just so mentally reassuring to have someone tell me what to do. So it wasn't sort of my job to structure things. I was relying on someone else that I trusted to do it. Um, and that confidence going to that was really important. But I think it was really important to get a comp in early. Um, if I had have waited any longer, I think I would have been not disappointed, but yeah, annoyed that I left it so late because it, doing your first comp's awesome. It's so much fun. And you, to a degree, you want to do your first comp when you're really strong, but it's awesome to do it when you're not really strong because then you see the improvements over time that you've made. So I regret probably not even doing it earlier. And then after that first comp, did you have this impression that, hey, I'm um, I've gotten quite good quite quickly. I could be really good at this sport. Or did you still kind of not really have a perspective of where you might end up? Uh, Yeah, not really too much of a perspective. I wasn't thinking, um, geez, I'm going to be really good at this one day in this sport. In particular, I was still sort of treading my toes in different things and trying different sports. And I was still playing rugby at the same time um, at that point. So I was still trying to work out where I was going, what I was doing. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know when that point came, but I remember back then I definitely wasn't interested in trying to be the best. I was just enjoying it. I had a goal. I think the biggest thing about the competition was it gave me something to actually work towards. And in my mind, if, as long as I had something booked in or something that I know is coming up where I get to showcase what I've been working for, I tend to work a lot harder towards that. So that was really important, I think, yeah. You said you were still playing rugby when you did your first meet. Mm-hmm. Did you notice the differences on the field with all the strength training? Yeah, I think... I don't know if I was already quite strong or athletically pretty, I don't know, pretty well built because of my karate and all that back then. But um, the girls used to call me chop chop on the field because when it come to tackling, it'd just be just thump. Like I used to hit the bag really hard. I used to hit the girls really hard. Tackling was probably something that I was better at, especially for a back. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I noticed the difference straight away with the crossover. I only did about rugby for two months while I was lifting weights but I'd assume if I tried to play now I wouldn't last as long endurance wise but I'd assume that yeah I would definitely feel stronger take off speed would be better that sort of stuff yeah so how much longer did you work with Liz for um I was with Liz until the end of that year so just until that meet um and the only reason I stopped working with Liz was because I moved back to Bathurst for a few months before I moved to Sydney so I've moved around a fair bit yeah um, so who started coaching you after you left? Um, so when I finished that comp, I let Liz know that I was actually moving again. So I was leaving Canberra to move back to Bathurst for six months. Um, and she was 
really, really um, supportive about it. And she actually referred a couple of people to me that actually lived in Bathurst. So I came in contact with, I'm not sure if you guys know Cara King. She's a master's yep. lifter. Yep. Um, I think Amir coaches her now, but Dean used to be her coach. Um, so she mentioned Dean and Cara's name. And she said, you know, Cara's building a gym called Power Up out of Bathurst. Dean's her coach. He programs. They all have a little you know, powerlifting community out of her gym. So maybe give them a call and see if you'll fit in there, um, which was really cool because not heaps of towns, especially rural and out west, have powerlifting communities built into them. So it was awesome. There was a handful of people competing and training already. Um, so I remember I reached out to Cara. She was super supportive, super excited to have another female coming on because there were a lot of boys training out of the garage at that time. There was about seven or eight of them. Um, so, yeah, I remember when I moved back to Bathurst, I met Cara. I got really involved with those guys. I learned a lot about Dean before I actually had him reach out and ask if I needed a coach. But I did a bit of research with him and noticed he had a lot of um, tertiary education, similar to what I'd done and a bit more extensive with programming um, and periodizing. Um, so I just thought with my own, um, I guess, scholar brain, like I'm not heaps, I don't have heaps of expertise in this, whereas he seems like he fills that gap. So that might be really beneficial. But in terms of a facility out of Bathurst, yeah, Cara had a gym in her um, garage, which was awesome. So I'd go over there every day and train with her. So that was pretty cool. So I guess the next question I have is what are the big differences in Dean's coaching versus Liz co- Liz's coaching? Yeah, sure. Um, so Dean, I find the programming um, is obviously different. They take different approaches. Um, Liz is very, when I was with her, very RPE driven, very RTS, very like that's their approach. And obviously that's what she's been taught and it works for her. And that's what she generally incorporated with me, which there wasn't a problem with. Um, but I found when I made a switch to Dean, we did a lot more block periodization. Um, so a lot more, um, there's changes in like the variability of percentages on a daily basis through the week. Um, and then, yeah, block periodized from there, a lot more structured with his block periodization. Um, he'd provide me an annual plan and I could see exactly what we were doing in specific phases. And it just made a bit more sense to me that I could see what was coming up and what we were working towards rather than just receiving that weekly program and doing what was written. Because I guess with a background of understanding, you know, coaching and training, it was nice to be able to decipher it myself of what we were working towards. So that was probably the main difference was just the style of programming. Um, Liz is a great platform coach. So um, I did miss that leaving her. She was really, really awesome. Bit of feistiness on the side. Like, you know, if you come off, she'd really get me um, fired up. So that was awesome about her. Um, Dean's a lot more on the quieter side, which isn't a bad thing. Um, but I guess, yeah, just two different personalities. Uh, two different personalities. Um, just the programming is probably the biggest change, though. So you spoke about um, you spoke about Liz using RPE and sort of more of an RTS school of coaching, and you spoke about Dean as using block periodization. Yep. For the listeners, can you maybe give like a little bit more of an in-depth idea of, well, one, what block periodization entails mm-hmm. um, and what the premises underneath it are and then yeah. how that would compare to a more like, yeah, RTS style approach? Sure. Um, so with our block periodizing, so Dean will generally split up our whole um, cycle into general prep and specific prep. And then within that, you break down like your, high, your endurance, hypertrophy, your strength, your max strength phases, and you taper all through that and then transitions between comps. Um, and is that all of like a predetermined length or? Yeah. So I guess at the start of the year, we make a little bit of a, a guess as to what comps we're hoping to do or when we're roughly going to time them. So we'll tend to block those into an annual plan through the mm-hmm. year. So whether it be two, three comps, whatever, and obviously that can change, but just for the sake of a plan, we just draft that. Um, and then we build backwards from that comp. So, you know, split generally general prep and specific 
specific pet prep into 50-50 and then within those blocks we'll generally start to filter in you know this is where we're going to spend hypertrophy this is where we're going to spend strength this is where we're going to do this and we generally work backwards just to get a good idea of what we're doing okay and then in the case of liz and the more rts school i guess you were with her for two months but how might that differ um it's really hard to tell because to be honest back then I didn't have as much of an understanding of her programming style and I only like I said I used to receive something week to week so I never saw a plan so I never really knew where we were headed with it but it would generally be um reduction in reps increase in sets as you go generally that linear sort of style until you get to your meet and then you start again back at your 12s and you work back down again right um so it was a little bit more I guess linear and the intensities were probably a bit more similar through the week rather than a percentage of change through the week that I have now but yeah, they're the, probably the main differences. Yeah, cool. Um, your approach, so you've you've mentioned block periodization, um, but like within that framework, it's possible to do training that is like relatively linear and looks pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Then it's possible to do training that departs quite away from the norm. Your training happens to depart quite away from at least what Alex and I would perceive as the norm. You do a lot of very heavy work. And you just do a lot of work overall. Yeah. So what does a training week look like for you now? And how has that changed over your time with Dean? Sure. Um, so I guess like, like I said before, so we use a percentage-based method um, with variable daily loading. So that's why every week it'll look like I have heavy sessions because I obviously post them on social media. But I do also have light sessions in those weeks. So I'm not lifting every single session really heavy every week. Otherwise, I would die. Um, my <laughs> volume did start out quite low when I started. Um, so I guess to give you numbers, um, in a in a st- general prep block, in a hypertrophy block, I might have been doing 30,000 to 35,000 kilograms a week when I first started of and- load. Sorry, just to give some more context to lifters, how many how many sort of sets ish for each lift might that look like? Um, if we're looking at a strength block, it might have been you know it might have been equivalent to like your five by five or something like that. So we started off pretty general in terms of what someone would usually do. The biggest change would have been that percentage in the daily loading would have been different to what most people usually do. So we have you know Monday might be a moderately heavy day, Tuesday might be really heavy, Wednesday might be moderately light, Thursday might be off, Friday might be moderate, Saturday, Sunday might be moderately heavy. So those daily loadings do change through the week. Um, and and you do train six days? Yeah. Right. I do okay. train six days. And is that all the lifts on each day? Six yeah. Days? So how we do it is we'll incorporate an upper and a lower body push and pull on every day. Um, and I guess that's just evidence-based. So clinical reasoning behind that is just the research simply suggests that if you incorporate, instead of splits, you incorporate all four in the same day throughout with those varying intensities, you're more likely to see strength gains. So right. that's sort of why we've adapted that approach. Yeah, cool. Um, what was I going to say? Okay, you kind of described what a normal training week looks like. How does then a general prep versus a specific prep differ? Like, mm-hmm. do you keep that same structure throughout? Yeah, so the structure's the same. Um, I guess the main difference between a general and a specific prep is the exercises. So, um, in my opinion, powerlifters don't do enough general prep. And by general prep, I mean step away from squat, bench, and deadlift. So, I mean come out of those three comp lifts and do anything else except those. So, looking on those areas where you need to build mass or build strength or where your weaknesses lie and just spending time 
you know, building on those areas. And that's what general prep is for me uh, and my lifters as well. So if I find, you know, a lifter just doesn't meet um, and they're not competing for another six months, that's great because that gives us three months in a general prep where we can start to build on those weaknesses that they've shown in that last meet, um, strengthen particular areas which are lacking. And then as it comes into that specific prep, we start to see that difference and we start to incorporate those other lifts back in. So given, given you've done two meets pretty much back to back now and another one in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. i bet you're really looking forward to get getting back to doing some general prep stuff yeah i'm sick of squat benching and deadlifting for sure <laughs> we came to have six months of general prep after i was this. gonna say considering you do it you know three times as much per session and three times as much per week <laughs> as alex and i you probably get sick nine times as fast yeah um what so in the case of just let's use your bench presses as an example yeah um what types of exercise changes might you make between a general and specific block yeah cool um so i guess with specific you're just doing comp bench more or less just comp bench maybe some wider bench or maybe some longer pause bench that's right. as far as my variety will go in a specific prep try to keep it as specific hence the name as to the comp lift as we can and how many weeks would that last for It'd be 50-50. So, like, so if you come back out of the comp and you sort of do it backwards, so if you're three months out from a comp, we'll go a month and a half general prep, right. a month and a half specific, um, and then within that month and a half, we'll program that okay. specific stuff in there. Yeah. And then the general stuff would be what push-ups, dumbbell press, overhead yeah, press? Exactly. Or, yeah, okay. a lot of overhead work usually. Um, I find for some reason the overhead work, particularly with my female athletes, really does push that bench press up, and it's something that we all, we all generally lack in strength. So something I like to incorporate heaps, dumbbell work, a lot of unilateral work as well with the general stuff. So, okay. So cool. I, I wanted to ask you something um, about your work capacity. Mm-hmm. So the amount of work that you can get through is like actually incredible. And like I look at some of the sessions that you do, and like they would either I either wouldn't be able to do them, or they would like literally kill me. Um, have you always been able to handle more work than other people? Yeah, I think so. And I honestly think that that comes down to my general training history. So I've always Ever since I was like six, I've always generally had my hand in something that's extensive in terms of training. And I think it's not just about coming into powerlifting. It's like, oh, I can tolerate a lot of volume. I've been training as an athlete for a long time now, and I yeah. think that has a huge contribution to what I can tolerate now. Yeah, so that was going to be my that was going to be my first question. Do you think that that's linked back to your sporting background? But then the next question would be, how has that improved over your time? In powerlifting, yeah. So sure. Before you carry on, were you using ex- extensive in the S and C sense there? Like when uh, you said I've been... Back with my karate and that you talked yeah. about? Or, no, not really. Okay, nah. cool. But I just think in terms of training capacity itself, you know, I'd still be training for three, four hours a day, three, four times a week. Like, I think not only my body is used to tolerating volume and tolerating work, but also, I guess, mentally resilient-wise, I'm used to that sort of training. And the volume doesn't knock me around as much mentally or physically as what it probably could if I hadn't done that before. So, yeah. yeah. So how much volume are you able to do now versus, like two years ago uh what i do now so again depends on the the phase but i in a coming off the back of a hypertrophy block i'm probably completing about sixty thousand kilograms of volume a week versus back then would have been about 40 so still pretty high when i first started i know that doesn't give people a good sense of how much that is that's so yeah forty thousand um kilograms lifted throughout the week versus about sixty thousand now so we got all that data, which is really cool to see. Um, we've also found, yeah, my ability to tolerate um, load itself has increased quite a lot too. So that just comes with training history, I think. Um, something I find interesting. So obviously, the amount of volume you've got, you've, well, you get through across the week has gone up 
50%. Yeah. Have you found that as the volume has gone up, the way in which you've had to distribute it has changed, or has it been pretty much just linear, like disperse it? It's been pretty much just the same, under Dean anyway. It's always been generally the same, except we've found we've been able to push the load up a little bit more. Um, so instead of having maybe... Um, one or two moderately heavy sessions a week I can have three or four now so I can tolerate that load a little bit more Um, we've also found I guess it'll be different between person to person but for me um, if I deload more regularly I tend to obviously tolerate a bit more so for us we've worked out two three weeks on one week off in like a strength block's actually really beneficial for me because we can jam that load and that volume up but then you know deload to make up for it and then start fresh again so so one of the biggest takeaways I as a coach am getting listening to you talk right now is that although you do training that might appear extreme on social media you don't see all of it on social media number one and number two fatigue management still really paramount to this it's huge yeah it's absolutely huge we yeah we deload very regularly we auto regulate very regularly so there's times where we're meant to deload in two weeks and I feel like trash and we'll throw it in you know that coming week to adapt for that and then we'll make it up later on um I think that's really important because you know Stress is stress. You know, I've got, like anyone else, a lot of things going on like work and uni and everything else that happens. So there's some weeks where I do find that I'm feeling more fatigued than I probably should be. And we just act on the spot and we'll go, you know, let's pull the deload in now. We'll fix it up later and we'll work from there. So I think that's really important to consider as well. Yeah, I guess what we're finding out here is that like on paper, it may seem like your training is completely different to what we would give people or what we do. But in principle, it's very similar. Yeah. It's just on a different scale. I think it's a different scale and just things are maybe programmed like my exercise selection and where we place things in sessions are a little different. And I guess sometimes the rep ranges and the set ranges look a little strange in my programs, but I guess that's just to make up for the volume. So sometimes it'll be super random because my sets will be, you know, five by three, five by two, five by one. You're like, why are you doing so many sets of random rep ranges? But at the end of the day, we're just doing those probably twos and threes to make up for that volume, which we wouldn't be getting if I had to do 50 singles. So that's sort of why we bring in those, it looks to be random rep ranges. It's just to make up that volume. Yeah, sure. Um, I'd like to take a very quick break and then we can come back and we've got more questions about your training. Cool. Cool, let's do it. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. We're here with Jess Selastanko, and we were talking about the training that you've been doing um, under Dean Storm. And Alex and I have both wondered exactly how it is you go about peaking, because you've you've spoken about dividing things into general preparatory phases, specific preparatory phases, and then you have these very high frequency, moderate to high intensity training sessions. Um, how does that like? What implications does that have for how you taper into a competition? Sure. Um, so we generally keep that model until about 10 days out. So Dean generally programs a 10-day taper. And mm-hmm. what that generally looks like is over that 10 days, the first six days will progressively decrease down to about 40% of my usual volume. And then day before competition, we sort of rise back up to 60% of what my usual volume is, the session before my comp. So that is sort of how we look at, I guess, the curve coming into a taper over 10 days for volume. Um, in terms of intensity, the load will start higher at the start of that 10 days and it will generally, again, with the volume, it'll taper down and then back up sort of that day before. So again, that's sort of down to 40%, up to 60% compete. And is that that little kick up before the competition because in training you normally have that moderate heavy session before your heavy, heavy session? Uh, not necessarily. I think it's just because I am someone who doesn't 
Um, I don't respond well to having a period of lifting light to then just going to heavy. So it's nice to have a session or two before comp where I've got something a bit heavier on my back. So when I come into comp, it doesn't feel new. It doesn't feel too foreign. I did it the day before, so I'm sweet. And I think mentally that poses, um, it just works really well for me because I know that I did it yesterday. So I'm going to do it today because I feel better and it's comp day. Um, So I guess that's the main reasoning behind doing it. Um, We also bring that approach in because movement priming is really well supported in the research. So we find doing those movements the day before at a moderately heavy, usually moderate to moderately heavy um, intensity, but low volume will prime the movement um, to a sufficient point in which we peak on the next day. Oh, you go. So give us an example of what that um, session the day before a comp would look like. Yeah. Um, So for me, it's generally about five kilos below the openers. So for me coming into China, the day before my comp will probably be five singles, five, sorry, five squat singles, five bench singles, maybe four deadlift singles. And it's five kilos usually below that opener. So again, I go in the next day, I've had that heavier weight in my hands. At that point I am peaking. So it's moving really well and it feels really good. And I also have that confidence going in the next day because my body's so used to that frequency and that volume and that load i don't have any issues with fatigue or doms or soreness or anything like that so we've found that is a really nice approach coming into comp so something i find interesting is you know you've spoken about things like movement priming and block periodization in general and specific prep and stuff Mm -hmm. which they're all concepts that are spoken about a lot in snc for other sports Mm -hmm. but probably much less so in the case of powerlifting um, how has how have your studies of SNC informed the way that you look at training? Um, mine personally, I don't. I leave it all in Dean's hands a lot with what we do in terms of because it is a different approach. Um, he studied at ECU under Greg Half, who is okay. quite an experienced um, SNC coach with Barbell Sports. He's quite a he's got a substantial background in weightlifting, um, and he generally pumped this into Dean. Like Dean undertook a, an assignment in periodizing, and that's what he generally majored in there. Um, and he worked closely with Greg and a lot of weightlifting-related programming, and this is the approach they took. Um, and there was just so much research to support the movement priming, that 10-day taper, rather than just like a, a block taper where you reduce everything and go into lift the next day. Um, there's just a lot more research to suggest that there's better strength gains to be made from doing it this way. So that's sort of why we've done it. Yeah, sure. Um, you Again, you've also spoken about how you, you apply these same principles in how you coach other people. Mm-hmm. Um, how does your training personally differ from the types of things you might give like an average client who walks in first day that comes to see you? Sure. Um, heaps. So I guess like if someone just comes off the street first day and I don't know them and they haven't done a whole lot of lifting, generally we go straight into like a neural adaptation sort of phase where it's just your classic three or four by 10, you know, let's get used to moving. Let's just get used to the barbell. Let's get used to, you know, have you done this before? If not, let's do it really light and just get, you know, that I guess, movement pattern in the muscle memory and getting them moving well from the get-go rather than lifting heavy, I guess, like you guys would do, obviously, with someone coming in off the street. Um, But I guess as they get more advanced, like I've got a couple of girls now who are getting to a point where they're becoming sort of underdogs and they're going to, I think, be not too bad in a year or so, and they're starting to now adapt, you know. We can bump that volume up a bit more. We can bump that load up a bit more. You're starting to see those random rep ranges that I was talking about where it might be 5 by 5 and then you might have a a 3 by 8 in there just to make up for that volume now because they're past that point and I don't expect them to do 10 sets of 5. So that's where the sort of random set and rep ranges come in with those guys. But I guess to start off, you just find that nice range where someone can tolerate a set amount of volume and you just build from there within your phases. Actually, sorry, something else just occurred to me. We're going back a little bit into block periodization. Yeah. We, you spoke about general preparatory and specific preparatory phases, yeah. and then within that 
there still might be blocks of emphasis, right, where you're doing more hypertrophy work, more strength, and then a pick. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I going to say? So in a specific preparatory phase, during the hypertrophy element of that, yeah. does that mean because you're almost exclusively using the competition exercises that when you do do a 5-5-5 and a 3 by 8 that might be that would all be on the same movement, which would probably be the competition squat. Is that the case? Yes, yeah, yeah. That's the reason. That's the only thing that would change in a hypertrophy block in the general prep to the specific prep would be yeah. So general prep might be a squat variation and then something else for three by eight? Yeah. Or okay. yeah. so generally yeah, it'll always a push pull upper and lower body in all the sessions. So minimum four of those lifts. Um in the general prep more likely to be your accessory based movements. Yeah. With a specific prep, it'll be probably the comp lifts and maybe for an upper back it might be a lap pull down or it might be, you know, a pull up or something like that to add in right. that upper pull as well but generally it's sticking to those comp when you can okay cool and does having that sort of structure have implications for how long you like to leave between competitions um it can i think for me right now like alex said before this is my third comp where i've had an eight week prep so i haven't gone through a general prep in probably since january so it's been quite a long time um so for me i'm starting to feel stale i'm starting to feel sick of these movements there's not that variety i'm plateauing because i just need variety and i need to build again um so that's why i think it's really important you have that general prep and you do have space between comps it's really nice if you're cutting weight that and that sort of thing to back up comps because you don't have to worry about recutting weight you can do two comps close together but if you do that you're not quite getting that groundwork and that foundation and you don't have time so sure yeah so We'll go back to you coaching newer lifters. Cool. They've done sort of neurological training phase. They're doing three by tens and things. Then you start training them in this similar template to you. Mm-hmm. Um, are most people training four days a week or five, six under you? Usually four. Usually four, no more. Usually four to five for their first year. No more than five. I make sure that they don't do any more than that just for the sake of I don't want them to overtrain. I don't want them to be doing too much. Um, they're generally going to have too much volume if they do more than that. So generally four is really common for when they first come in though because they're not too dedicated to the gym yet. They're just getting a feel for it. They don't want to be in the gym for five days. They don't want to dedicate that. So we can fit everything into four sessions and that's usually a nice split. You mentioned the um, wave in intensity that you use, use heavy, moderate, whatever. How does that work for a four-day split for your clients? Um, it depends on the lifter. Um, so if there's someone who, generally knowing the lifter, some people are going to tolerate volume, I mean, sorry, load better than others. So I might have someone who is usually really stressed. They have a high work capacity, like they're, they're working 40 hours plus a week. They're always stressed. You know, they've got a lot going on. Their variability and their intensities are going to be a lot lower than someone who can tolerate it and they're stress-free and they love training and they're enjoying it so i've got two lifters now one who i will load lower and she might have a moderately light two moderate and a moderately heavy whereas i have another lifter who i'll have a heavy a moderately heavy and maybe two moderate and she doesn't need that moderately light session because she tolerates the load really well so it just depends on the lifter and how we yeah set it i guess Very so how, how do you um define those uh load intent like those load um, parameters like yep. what, so, what would moderate be in terms of percentage what would heavy be in terms um, of percentage I've got an excel sheet actually so it it's all equation based we do it all um, through I use google drive with my guides anyway um, so if I get something up let me show you guys but yeah basically it just depends so moderately light will be depending probably around under 70% 70% and under um, I'm just trying to find one here is this all purely intensity dependent, by the way, or do you also like change the, the difficulty of the volume? Like 70% for 3x8 might be equivalently hard to 80% for 
four by five or something. Yeah, that doesn't matter. Yeah, it's just like so. Um, it'll be intensity will just be based on yeah the rep ranges. So everything's equation based that I do in my sheet anyway. And okay. so I'll set something as moderately light, and then that um, is what it'll be set at. So if I get, I'll use Amanda Godlover as an example. Hers is so Amanda is one of my athletes, and she tolerates quite a lot of volume that's not working but that's okay. shout out amanda shout out amanda um and her stuff she does a lot of heavy sessions so she'll have um she had a heavy moderately heavy bench session today and so her um benches were again she had god love her five sets of two and then five sets of three so she got through 10 sets of work today i know poor that's thing. actually <laughs> when you think about it though like i mean depending on how heavy that is You've programmed 10 sets of bench in a session for me, and I hate bench. Yeah, that's because you're terrible at bench. <laughs> yeah, well, you need to do more bench. well, it didn't work, did it? So, <laughs> yeah, but like as in, 10 sets of bench isn't really that stupid. No. Unless they're, unless they're like super hard. How hard were they, Jess? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, today she's was a tough nut. She's said. a tough nut. She's good. So, for example, like her moderately heavy session is anywhere between 85 and 90%. Okay, so it's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy, yeah. yeah. So for me, a very light session would be 65 to 70. Um, a moderate session might be 80 to 85, 85 to 90 if you're moderately heavy, and then anything above that's really heavy. So that's yes. sort of the percentages we use, yeah, when I load okay. it. Yeah. That's depending on the reps, yeah. And so in a, say, general preparatory phase where you're not using the competition lifts, mm-hmm. do you use the same percentages just relative to the lift that they're using? Yep, same percentages, but I'll generally load them lower. So there's no reason to have super high-intensity general prep phases. We generally want to encourage the volume more than anything, so the total weight moved. Um, so I'll generally make sure that if you're looking at a graph and you're looking at the intensity and the volume, the volume's always going to be higher in your general prep. Whereas if you're looking at that difference and that change to a specific prep, you're going to find that as you come into those max strength phases, obviously that intensity is going to come up a lot higher than the volume. So I think there's actually a lot of parallels in the way that you're talking about programming with things that Alex and myself have done. So when we have like lifters in off seasons or who are a long way from competition, mm-hmm. you know, we favor things like high bar squatting or, you know, Romanian deadlifts and variations like that that let you get through a lot of volume but still limit absolute intensity, mm-hmm. you know, and they still allow us to address weak points and things like you said and we we bias things away from the competition lifts both to preserve like the competition lifts being fresh and because doing so has like a high fatigue cost. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in that respect it seems like we do a lot of things very similarly. Yeah. And even in the way in which you speak about you speak about preps, like I've done peaks for myself and for clients where I've had people squat three to four times a week, you know, and bench on three to four times a week and maybe deadlift twice and on two of the other days do an upper body pull. Yeah. So you end up having four full body sessions a week with undulating difficulty across the lifts. Yeah. I've I've not tended to concentrate all the heavy load into one session. It might be one lift is heavy while the others are easy on each day. But there's a lot that's actually very similar in principle Mm -hmm. in what you're talking about. It's just the system by which you've come to it is a little bit different. Would you agree, Alex? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And even that example of Amanda earlier, she did 10 sets of bench. We might program six sets of bench then four sets of dumbbell press or something like that so it's like it's the same but it's just a little bit different exactly it just looks different on paper and i think yeah just because the approach is different it does spark question with people and because they're not seeing the whole picture it's really hard to understand Mm. like like i said it's easy for me to post up my heavy session every week but realistically i'm only doing one really heavy session a week so i'm always posting that up and it looks like i'm doing that every day but i'm not i do have light sessions in there too i'm going to ask you to play devil's advocate against your own programming now that we've now that we've determined that we broadly agree um, when you're doing, <laughs> wow! Um, now that, no, now that you're doing, like, say you're doing ten sets of bench in a day. Yeah. Um, for you, let's talk like specific prep phase, early in the block. So you're doing mostly hypertrophy work, maybe doing like a five by five and a five by eight after or something like that. Yeah. Um, 
Do you ever see an advantage to to splitting that across two movements, or using a secondary movement to address a weakness? Then, or what? Or I should say, what's the advantage of hyper specificity across all of that volume? Sure. Um, so, in a general prep, hundred percent, we'd be happy to break that up into something else. Again, addressing the weakness. Um, that's the point of that prep. So, I'd be more than happy to split that up. And for the sake of variety, I'd probably be more open to doing that. Um, it is tough with a specific prep, like I said. So, I mean, keeping it specific is helping with the movement pattern. I'm still technically probably on the intermediate side of the lifter, so I still need that practice with the movement, getting that technical efficiency under the heavier weights, just getting used to moving that heavy weight well. Um, and I think it comes down to still that practice under the bar for me, and that's why we stick to so specific with those lifts. Um, and I just don't see any, for me, any point in changing that and doing some dumbbell press when that's not what the conflict is when we're coming into a specific prep. So that's sure. generally why we keep it. Well, okay, let me ask another way then. Um, you So one of the benefits of a general prep phase that you said is it allows you to like elegantly address. Used elegantly again <laughs> this month. That's Alex and my favourite word. Ever since I stopped saying ergo... We've been saying elegantly a lot. Shout out Kelvin <laughs> Kenny. Shout out Kelvin Kenny for we had a guy write to us and say Will says ergo a lot. Um, anyway, so so you have a general prep phase. Ergo, you can <laughs> you can address you can address weaknesses through movement selection and things. Yeah. Um, and about halfway in your comp prep, you move towards specific prep, and so it's almost entirely the competition lifts. Yeah. Would you ever consider just extending the general prep phase so that you could keep hammering those weaknesses because you think? It probably only takes me four or six weeks of very specific work mm-hmm. to like to get the most adaptation I will out of specificity, or do you tend to think it's worth doing longer blocks of specific stuff always? Probably a bit of both. So you could generally extend the general prep out to a bit closer. Um, or the other thing we have done in the past is because the frequency for benchings is like, for example, I might be benching five times a week out of my six days because mm-hmm. I'm doing a push on every day. Um, it's not going to be bench press with a barbell compress for those five days. So we might end up putting... For one of those days on the lighter day, we might throw the dumbbells in there or we might throw something else in there just This for the is in the specific. Yeah, phase. yeah, right. yeah. So it's not necessarily, when I say specific, like we want to keep it comp lift specific for most of it. But for the sake of a lighter day, if we do need the variety in there, there might be something different. Um, right. We might have RDLs in there instead of um, deadlift or we might have, yeah, something a bit different in there just for the sake of a bit of variety. But usually it's focusing on those comp lifts and the heavier loaded sessions will be those comp lifts. Yeah. yeah so again, that sounds like another point of broad agreement with us because in a competition phase obviously like we'll be biased towards flat benching yeah but i've had clients do an incline bench on a like tertiary pressing day yeah like i said before like usually with my comp bench the other ones will generally do is maybe a bit of a wider bench and a longer pause bench but it's still bench pressing comp press but with those tiny little variations on some days where it might be a bit lighter load so it's a it's a large bias towards specificity as opposed to being like absolutely only comp always yes okay cool um so it sounds like you recommend this type of training to other people because that's how you coach them. Yeah. What attributes like physically and mentally do you think you need to be successful with this approach? Um, I think if you're an organized person, it works really well. Cause again, having that annual plan, having blocks actually visible to see where you're going to be moving through is actually really nice. And I know for me, I really enjoyed going into that with Dean. Um, I guess just, yeah, I think going in there, if, it is really overwhelming to look at a piece of paper and say there's 15 sets or something but you don't jump straight into that I guess with a lot of my girls you know we started off with what you guys probably do you know like your four by eight or your five by five and generally I start to tack on more slowly over time and before you know it they look down they've got 15 sets and they're used not used to it but they're it doesn't scare them Um, subtle manipulation of them to do things that they otherwise wouldn't want to do exactly (laughs) (laughs) 
They love yeah. me for it. Um, but yeah, I definitely don't just dump it on them. You know, it's like their first specific prep, and it's like, damn, you've got like 15 sets of bench. Let's go, super heavy. Um, no, I definitely don't do that to them. But yeah, sure. Yeah, that'll you, weed out the weak ones. You, <laughs> you, you mentioned you you add volume over time. How long would that sort of process take to get from sort of your your five by five to then doing 15 sets? Like, how many months or years would that would depends that take? Depends on the person. Um, depends how often they're training. Depends how athletic they were before then. Like the training history for me it didn't take too long. Um, for me, we jumped into volume pretty quickly and we were able to build really quickly. Again, I've found other people that don't generally treat powerlifting, obviously, as their number one. It's a hobby. It takes them a lot longer because they're not training as, um, I guess, they're not taking training as seriously. They're not eating as well. They're not recovering as well. So it does take longer to build into that. But it's just going to vary person to person. And also, how much more room do you think there is for you to add volume? Um... I always think, like to think that I could push myself a little harder. Like I still walk away from sessions now and I think, you know, could I have done a bit more? Um, but I think that's just me mentally. Like I, I feel like the only thing stopping me is my worry that I'm going to get injured over time and that's my only mental setback from stopping me doing more. Um, it's really hard for me to go into the gym and see like a light session program because all I want to do is lift heavy because I think in my head I'm like I need to lift heavy, to lift heavy on comp day so I want to lift heavy every day. But um, Dean kills me some days when I do generally overestimate his numbers or I pretend like I didn't read it properly um but I that I admitted that um but yeah no it is really hard and I always like to think I can always mentally it isn't a barrier for me to push like I generally always think I've got more there if I need to but I don't know I don't know how much of a performance adaptation that would give me I don't know if I'd probably start to overtrain probably more so than overreach once I started adding more volume I think we're at a pretty high spot now as it is but it'd be interesting to see at the time when you train other people and i guess for yourself as well what indicators do you look for to tell you like this person needs more pulsatility in their stress as opposed to like flatlining it you spoke about how stressed they are outside the gym what else yeah generally just using um general health questionnaires um checking up with them daily looking at their weight fluctuations um looking at this we do like i had just a standard stock questions about you know what how do they feel are they feeling sick do they have like you know do they feel like they're having a cold do they have any muscle aches do they um feel tired do they feel replenished after their night's sleep are they getting enough sleep all those sort of health and wellness questions really help direct how they're feeling and over time i guess leading up to a comp i'm going to find people are starting to feel sick people are feeling achy you know they're not getting enough sleep or if they are they don't feel refreshed and that's to me showing okay we're starting to overreach now you know we're leading into a taper soon that's great that's what we want um whereas if that's happening in a general prep phase i'm sort of thinking okay we're pushing too hard so those little indicators are enough for me to realize you know we need to pull it back and also communicating with them and knowing their lifestyle so knowing that they work full-time or knowing that you know they work part-time as a pt or that sort of thing i think those are really simple indicators that really help me work out yeah do you have like a spreadsheet for them to fill this information out or is it just like when you see them? Yeah, so they have a spreadsheet um, they can fill out on, I use Google Drive with my guys for my program so they can go on, they can update it and I can update it from both ends. So we generally just make changes to that. Yeah. Cool. Um, I think that like block periodization or just periodization in general, one of the criticisms that's often leveled at it is that basically you assume really far in advance what people are going to need and that rigidity forces you to make decisions and you're less adaptive in your decision making than you ought to be Mm -hmm. and it sounds like from what you're saying again that you take a lot of information from your clients and you adapt things on the run Mm -hmm. big time so how would you respond to that criticism in your experience both as a as a coach and as an athlete 
um, in terms of like being sticking to the schedule you do yeah sticking to the schedule and being able to adapt and being able to integrate this like this adaptive or reactive component that you obviously do with this overarching planning how do you respond to that Um, well we we do do it like I can't see how it would work if you didn't have that sort of order regulation through like I mean I only generally like to program a week in advance because things change and people change and like I said with these varying intensities and things going on stresses in life people are going to feel really different week to week so it's nice to have that underlying plan of this is on a perfect day this is what we want to follow and this is what it's going to look like but there are going to be changes throughout um so especially with my programming even like i know with dean he'll probably program two or three weeks in advance he'll send me one week at a time because we do make changes um and things do change the plan like i said there might be a week where we've you know maybe pushed it a little too far and i'm feeling really fatigued and i've got exams on and i'm stressed and i'm on placement on top of work and i can't really tolerate all that so we need to pull the load back and deload the next week when ideally we wanted to two weeks later but that's okay and that happens and i guess within block periodizing as long as we restructure to that plan it generally still works out so it's just all about having a plan and then a plan b if something were to happen yeah it's like you use an overarching plan to direct your efforts and then you adapt within that to make sure that you're sort of broadly sticking the course to get where you want to in the end. Exactly, yeah. I think it's a bit different to like a team sport because team sports are generally, they're regularly competing, so week to week. So they generally have a reoccurring schedule that's very similar, whereas we have all different phases that are constantly changing with different comps at a different times apart from each other. So that has more flexibility to change than what a team sport might look like if they're programming block. Sure. Um, yeah. Okay, so to change tack a little bit, as a competitor, you've put a lot of effort into finding the strategies that help you maximise your performance. Mm-hmm. Um, what are they and what sort of led you to do this? Sure. Um, so I guess for me as a competitor, I just I feel like I've always been able to put 100% into my training comp. I think I thank my dad a lot for that because he's just this big Belarus man who's always like, you know, if you don't put everything in, you're not worth it. Like, you've got to put 100% into everything or else, you know, you're going to come last and you're going to lose and no one wants a loser, you know. He's always, like, always drilled that into me as a kid and I just, yeah, I never like losing. So I can thank him for that. Um, physically, I guess I've always managed my injuries. I've had a fair few surgeries in the past, so I've had to overcome a lot, particularly as a younger child. Um, so I think little niggles now don't bother me compared to what I have overcome younger um so that's been really building for me now and I find that I'm a lot more disciplined and resilient when it comes to my rehab now because I see the importance of it and I see where my weaknesses are because of what's happened in the past and I take that seriously um mentally I've done a lot um I've recently implemented a whole lot more stuff on like imagery um a lot more stuff on positive self-talk that's been a huge one that I've tried to work on um, when I started... How's the positive self-talk going? So much better than what it used to Perfect. be. Perfect. So oh, you meant to say, oh, it's going good. <laughs> so much better. Positive. Um, yeah, so I guess, like, I'd finish... I remember, God, the two best comparisons I can use would be Nationals last year. Um, I had a horrible prep. I had a lot going on family-wise. I had 15 weeks of physio placement full-time before I come into it. So it was horrible. I was training at 3 a.m. and I was getting these ridiculous sessions done just before I'd go to placement and I wasn't getting very much sleep and it killed me. Um, And I remember I turned up to Melbourne the night before and I said to Brad, I was like, I do not want to be here. Like, I want to go home. Let's just go and get burgers. And I just, I'll wane over and no one will even care. I'll be fine. And I remember the next day we woke up and we were lifting on the pro show. So we were lifting at 8 o'clock at night and I just, I remember by 3 o'clock, I was falling asleep in the chair. I did not want to be there. I was tired, exhausted 
cutting weight, um, again, I'd put on a fair bit of weight with placement and that and just wasn't eating properly. So I really did not enjoy it. I did not have a good meet. Um, and I was just so negative. So as soon as I did my first opening squat, I walked out and I was just like, that's crap. Like, I don't want to do it. The next two are going to be so hard. Like, I just remember I just straight away, like, did not want to be there and didn't even try to incorporate anything positive into it. And I remember I walked away really disappointed about it and probably more annoyed, even though the circumstances sucked, I didn't make more of an effort to want to do well and try and make the most of why I was there. Um, so that was probably the biggest like reflection we come away from that Brad made me sit down my partner and he was like we are going to reflect on that because that was horrendous <laughs> it was shit your attitude was shit your performance was pretty shit let's talk about it uh, and we reflected that was a big thing like I'd come straight off the platform I'd look at him and be like don't want to be it sucks you know I feel like crap and he was so adamant that that made probably the biggest difference between now and like the expo you know I'd come off the platform and even if it felt shit I was like nah that was good that was good let's put some more weight in the bar I'm keen you know we want to get this we want to get that and it was just a lot more positive and I think that made a huge difference I was um coaching in both the sessions you're talking about so I was um coaching someone else at the expo and coaching someone else during the pro night as well and I could like literally tell the difference in just like your body language and like your just like positivity and everything just on those two meets mm-hmm. um like how did you get to that point like what what was the main thing that got you that positive uptick I guess uh it took a lot of time it wasn't just like yeah you wake up the next day and you're like I'm gonna be positive mm. this whole session all right smile on my face and walk off and yeah and, yeah, and then you're secretly inside. dying inside it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay um yeah that's like that meme you know the dog and there's a fire all yeah, around it's it's like, this is fine yeah. <laughs> that's me every day <laughs> my emotions yeah um it yeah, took did, a lot of did time did you have to like fake it a little bit at first until it became a reality 100% I found myself saying it even though I didn't want to say it and, and Brad has been awesome with it he is a teacher by background and he is really good with those sort of principles too and I remember I'd finish something I'd finish a session and look at him and I'd be like you know I'm ready to like to say to him you know that was crap and he'd give me that look and I'd be like it was great (laughs) I'm having so much fun so the secret to positivity is fear of disappointing others exactly (laughs) (laughs) Um, it was it eventually got there though like I mean it turned into you know two or three times a week I legitimately felt good and I was reassuring myself that was the case there was a session here and there where I was sort of lying myself and I was like that was crap but hey like it's not bad let's look at the positives you know I'm going to get through this this is going to help me build and get my ultimate goal at the expo and I think yeah, having those goals was another thing you mentioned imagery do you want to elaborate on that yeah sure um so for me I have quite a particularly for my deadlift I have quite a pre-lift routine that I have down pat now um, I do like to sort of find myself <laughs> my, my big wavy arms before I lift is all part of it. Uh, I tend to like to find myself, I pace around in the warm-up area a fair bit. I have my headphones on. I don't like to sit down because I find I think too much when I'm sitting down and I'm still. So if I just have music on and I just get pumped up, especially for deadlift, that works really well for me. Um, what type of music? Just out of curiosity. Oh, I'm, I honestly, I listen to like the rockiest of like WWE theme songs so like I've got Triple H pumping out yeah. just as I walk alone um, all kinds of those sort of songs like the game um, yeah it's really lame but it's no, so it awesome. super works yeah. <laughs> um, yeah the Motorhead songs like those sort of things are all pumping um, and I'm generally listening to those and like you Brock, have you guys heard of Brock Lesnar's theme song like that's sort of it's just real doof doof and like it right. just really gets me going out the back um, about two minutes before I walk out, I will find myself against a wall. I'll close my eyes and I just use that energy to sort of try and best as I can replicate what that lift's going to be in my head. So it sounds really simple and really silly, but for me to be able to just stop for a moment, 
reflect on like I can hear people already I can start to feel smell what's going on I can see myself going out there and just gripping that bar and pulling it and then you know a minute later I'm going out and doing it and I'm finding the resemblance between you know what I've seen and what I actually do is actually really really similar and I think I'm just starting to put that energy towards that before I go have you there. have you also noticed that because of the way that you train and that you do so many practice singles mm-hmm. have you noticed have you noticed that that's helped you then perform in competition? I think for the openers it helps. It's, I'm more reassured that, you know, I'm not going to have an issue with a heavy opener because I'm so used to practicing under that heavy load. Um, I don't know how it correlates to the heavier stuff. I don't find practicing the heavy stuff is ever going to be, you know, ideal because it's not ever going to move. For me, it doesn't ever move as well in training as it does in comp. Like, I'm never going to pull a 196 deadlift in training as I did in, like, at nationals. It's never going to move like that in training. Um, so I think it's all about that energy and that, adrenaline that I get in comp that helps that but I think all those heavy singles 100% build my confidence setting my openers because I know if I can do it 10 times the week before I can do it once a comp with everything else going on. Do you use the same imagery techniques in training that you do in competition? Um, Not as much the positive self talk I do the imagery not as much um, I find it it's that's why I kind of find I perform a lot better in competition too I have all those additional things that I add on um, which I probably could utilize in training more but I just find the environments I'm in I'm training out of generally a lot of the time a commercial gym so Macquarie Uni gym so I think people would look at me really funny if I start doing real you know walking around pacing around listening to heavy metal WWE songs and imagery I could try it but I haven't honestly thought of it and I'm usually training really early where I don't find that's gonna ideally work for me as well yeah um what advice would you give to someone out there who's listening who might struggle with like negative mindset in competition mm-hmm. and how would they approach improving that? Sure. Um, just, I guess, trying not to say... For me, I guess the one... The first thing we did was trying not to say those negative things out loud. So just trying to keep them sealed. If you're thinking them, the worst thing you can do is come out and blurt them. And I think that just sort of makes it official what you're saying out loud. So for me, a huge step in improving my mindset was... If I thought something negative, if someone's there or even if no one's there, like say something positive out loud about it and try and look at the positives of what you've got going forward um, and try and bury those negative things as easy as it is to say. It does get easier over time because I know when I started, like I used to always walk away from things and be like, oh, that sucked, that was heavy, that was slow, but I wouldn't say it out loud. And then I guess over time it sort of went from saying out loud to not saying it out loud to now I don't even think about it. It's always just the positive stuff coming to me. So I think it's a practice, it's something you need to practice over time and it's sort of, it becomes a bit of a routine as well. So how do you temper like only taking the positives from your training experiences with the awareness that it takes to be able to say like when you are feeling fatigued or when your performance is worse than you would expect? Sure. Um, So I guess like during the session, I try to avoid it. Afterwards for reflection, there's always a place for that. I think generally with a comp or with training or with anything, there's always a place for reflection after, um, but it's, I don't think I ever see value in being negative with those sort of things during the session. So, um, you know, I'll, I don't ever have a coach face-to-face. So for me, I'm really lucky at the time. I can't tell Brad or tell Dean, you know, I feel like shit and this, that. I just get it done because I don't have anyone to whinge to, which is really good because I can't, you know, express that to anyone. Um, so but keep your feelings inside. Yeah, train with have yourself. no support network. <laughs> yeah, you won't say anything lie. bad. Yeah. Um, but in a comp, for example, like I've got Brad and Dean there and usually, you know, it... I might come off and I might miss a lift, but it's as simple as I, I've said this before. And Brad and I follow rugby league like you wouldn't believe. And we always, he always uses the analogy of James Maloney is a really good, you know, football player. And the reason he makes really good decisions and he's such a good learner is because he's a goldfish. And if he does something bad, he'll completely forget about it and then move on. And then, 
you know, he might throw a pass and it might get an attempt and score a try at the other end, but he'll completely forgot he's done it by the time the try's been scored. And when he goes to throw that pass again, he doesn't hesitate and he, you know, he nails it. And it's the same thing with the lifting. So if I do a bad squat, there's no point coming off and, you know, getting upset about it and getting worked up about it and blaming someone else. It's as simple as walk off. I have a sigh, you know, I've got the shits, but let's move on. I've got bench next. So if I'm going to reflect on my squat, I'm going to just burn, like all that hard work that I put into increasing my mood, increasing, you know, that pump that I've got for the next lift, I've lost it because I've just made myself depressed over my squat. So I essentially try and forget each lift as I go. And then when we're having beers at the pub later that night, that's when we'll come out and go, okay, lift by lift. How did we go? You know, okay, that kind of did suck, you know, and that honesty can come out from there and we can talk about it. And I think training should be the same. Maybe wait until that session's done, reflect afterwards, and there's a time for that but you're not in the moment then and you're not going to wreck what you've got going for you at the time Mm. yeah sure I think that's really good advice cool Um, let's just talk a little bit about your transition from um, 64 down to 58 kilo class Mm -hmm. Um, and then we'll get into the four questions cool Um, we'll have a break before well we'll need we'll need a quick break because I want to play guitar I haven't played much this week Alex is thrilled. <laughs> All right, so, <laughs> so you, I, I actually liked that you said you were, how much, 68, 69 kilos when I, you started? My top, so when I moved to Canberra, my top weight was 71 kilos. I was a heavy little thing. How how tall not are you, bit. for perspective? I'm 158 centimetres. So, so not very tall. Five, three? Two? Five, yeah, five, three. So you were dense oh, at 70 kilos. Oh, I was kilo. fat. <laughs> 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 put it out there, I was fat. <laughs> okay, yeah. so... So you've been as heavy as 70-ish. You competed at 58 at Nationals. You're competing at 58 um, at China. Well, so you yeah. keep weighing in way too light. You're like... I won't this time, 56 or something at the expo. I don't yeah. mean it. I freak out. <laughs> <laughs> so how, um, how have you actually gone about making these transitions between weight classes? And when you're between competitions, mm-hmm. how do you sync your nutrition up with your training? Sure. Um, so I guess originally... I remember when I started with Liz, she was just blatantly honest and she was like, you, you can't be 72, like you're too little, you're going to be 63. And that was just, it was as simple when I was 70 kilos dropping to 63 as just stop eating out. Like I was eating really bad in Canberra. I'm not a big, like I'm not a tall person. So I was carrying a lot of excess weight. So with my rugby, with my powerlifting training regular um, and with a reasonably half decent diet, I that weight fell off pretty easily. Um, it wasn't too hard to lose. So getting to 63 wasn't too much of an issue. Um, for that first comp, we did do a little water load, which I probably wouldn't encourage for anyone doing their first comp. But I remember I got down to about 64 and a half and we, the week of, um, and we lost the rest just with water and a bit of food weight. So that wasn't a problem. Um, but in terms of coming down to 57 at the time, I made one weight cut to 57 before I actually cut down recently. Um, and that was my second ever competition. And I remember it just come up as a challenge. My partner, Brad, was like, um, one day, oh, hey, I bet you wouldn't be able to get down to 57. And I'm just super competitive. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll show you. And did it in the most ridiculous way. In seven weeks, I went from 65 down to 57. And it was horrendous. So I was running like four or five K a day. I was eating probably 1,100 calories. I was still lifting reasonably well considering what I was doing. But it was just like I had to do anything to get to that weight because someone posted as a challenge and I didn't have a lot of time. So I didn't have anyone helping with nutrition at that point. I only had Dean coaching me for training. So it was right. it was just like a competitive, like, I bet you can't do that. And I'm like, I'm going to show you. I and bet he regretted that when yeah. you were in a <laughs> shit-ass mood for like two straight months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He deserved it, though. Yeah, he did. hundred percent. So I remember actually... You should tell him you bet that he can't get in, like, the best shape of anyone ever. And just... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, I remember I turned up to Wayne that day, and at the time, so do you guys know Kieran Rodwell? 
Kieran Rodwell. He was Don't 105 so. lifter. He moved overseas um, a year ago. He was not too bad. He um he trained in Bathurst with us, and he okay. was competing at the Strength Syndicate with me. It was March 2017 in the comp that we did. Um, and I remember I turned up to weigh in, and he looked at me, him and his coach, and they were like, do you need to go to hospital? Like, you are so great. Are you okay? Like, are you going to pass out? And I remember I was just in a constant tremor. Like, I was just shaking. I'd been in the sauna that morning. I was Shaking just, burns energy, so that's good. It, it, uh, yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, carry <laughs> Wait on. Waiting under 57. Um, yeah, so, and my lifts, I think, for that weren't too bad. So they were, I think I squatted 130, I benched 75, and I deadlifted 170. So it wasn't too bad for that weight. Um, but... The process definitely wasn't great, and I knew we could do it again and refine it. Um, so I spent probably another year in the 63s, 64s, just enjoying it because I did not enjoy that process, and it turned me off. I swore I'd never do it again. Um, so I spent a lot of time at 63 again. Um, 63 for me is quite a comfortable weight class. I can be quite beefy and still make 63 because um, I'm short. Um, so I guess when it got to a point where it was, you know, Tara, Shay and I was sort of the top three 63s, it was really cool because we were super competitive, but I noticed there wasn't a whole lot happening in 57, um, moving into 58 at the time. And I thought, you know, this might be a really good opportunity to, you know, have a play and have a dip again, um, and do it properly, you know, do it a bit more time out from a comp, have a proper nutrition coach. Let's see how much mass we can maintain. Let's bring some, um, variables into it. Let's get a DEXA scan. Let's do strength tests. Let's see, you know, what we can play with and make it a bit of an experiment more than anything and just to change it up because I was getting a little bit bored um, at 63 just with the three lifts I thought it'll spice it up to play with the weight um, and I remember coming off the back as soon as I did nationals the next day I woke up and I was like we're going to do it now I'm going to do it in eight weeks like I remember I just needed something to take my mind off what had just happened with that really crap comp um, and I thought that was it and it worked really well so I was at the point 64 Got down to 58 because the weight classes had changed from 57 to 58. Um, and then I joined up with Megan Scanlon, who is currently, um, she comes second at the IPF Worlds this year. Um, she's insanely strong. Um, she should have won. And she's Jack. She should have won. I don't know what happened to her squads. Died <laughs> watching them. Um, but she's insanely strong and Shout ripped and Jack. Shout out Megan. Um, Rip squads. <laughs> yeah, go on. Squats more than you two. No. Yeah, no, oh, that can't be hard. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if she hits death, she squats more than Alex and I. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's been amazing and really supportive. And I guess between comps, particularly these last three preps, we've been trying to sit at around 60 kilos, 61 max, and then sort of a week or two out, we'll start to dip down under 58. And like you said, we always weigh well under, so it hasn't been too much of an issue. Yeah, cool. Should we cool. take a break? Yeah, that was... Um, oh, wait, so, actually, no, I had one more question. Do you ever plan on going back to 64, or are you going to stay in 58 for long Yeah, time? I always think, like, I think having a bit of, not necessarily feeling 64, but just being able to maybe feel 62, 63, um, just to build a bit more and then drop back down to 58 again. I think I need a period of where I can build a bit more with some more mass on me. I'll tolerate more volume, even more volume, so that'll be really fun. Yeah. Um, and then I'll dip back down. But I think, yeah, I'll probably start fluctuating between the two over time. Bench 100 and do the 220 or yeah, something? Yeah, that'd be fun. Then go to 72s. Ooh, back to 72s. Yeah. No way. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. You go to 72s, I'll go 120 plus. <laughs> Done. <laughs> All right, we're taking a break, and then it's the four questions. <laughs> That's the official that's the official weekly weights sound now. You know the onomatopoeia in comic books where they go like to... wham, smack, <laughs> wapow. Well now we have blammy. I don't want this to stick. Kablammo next week. When we start recording. You and me, just kablammo. It's episode sixty nine or some shit. Is Welcome it sixty nine next week? <laughs> Welcome back. 
Yeah. It's episode 68. Fuck yeah, next week. We've got Jess Suistenko. And we're going to hit her with the four questions to tell us everything we need to know about a person. So the first question is, if you could take one person out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be and why? This will sound really strange and probably a bit off the cuff, but I would probably go, my partner will love me for this, Maddie Johns. 100%. Do you guys listen to Maddie Johns' podcast? He used to, know Maddie Johns. He used to train at Willoughby. There you go. What a legend. He anyway. Is, he is actually a really good he bloke. He's a good bloke. He does some fucking weird chest training though. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's, feet up against the wall, up, weird push-ups. Up super extended back. He does like, this is like this. It's, Scat push-ups? It's like, like a, a no, it's like a guillotine, it's like a guillotine press, but a push-up. <laughs> and, and sometimes he'll, he's like way up in the air. Yeah, and sometimes <laughs> he'll put his feet against the wall and do it as well. So it's like an incline, it's not a handstand push-up, it's like an incline wall supported push-up. That's brilliant. Yeah. He seems like a good time. He seems like you could have a good old chat with him. I listen to his podcast every week. I reckon down pat, you guys are probably oh, very close second best, but he has got to have the best podcasts I've ever heard. Like, he's the most entertaining man. Listening to him and Brett Finch, I could go get on the piss with them, I reckon, and have a good time. Yeah, no, I reckon Matty Johnson yeah, would be good yeah, He's, good. like, got a sense of humour. He's polite. I, he used to turn up at Willoughby after recording his radio show, yeah. and he'd be, like, headphones in. He'd smash a workout. Like, he got through a lot of work. It was yeah. just weird. Um, but, you know, he was a nice guy if you bailed him yeah, up. Yeah, he just seems like he j- has a general good knowledge of everything too, so you could talk to him about anything. So One of the um, one of the trainers that we used to work with used to try and talk to him way too much. <laughs> like, literally every morning. Yeah, he'd and try and get his tits for the EPL and stuff. Try and talk to him about, about the EPL, about the NRL. And Maddie stopped coming into the gym for, like, a few months to avoid him. <laughs> and no, then came we, back. We've mentioned this on the podcast before, and my client, Katsu, who works at Willoughby, told Mark oh, about fucking, that. Fucking and then, snitch. And so the trainer that we're talking about, Mark, he trains my dad. And so he came to go fishing with us one afternoon. And it would have been six months after we mentioned this to Katsu. And he goes, can't believe you said that Maddie stopped coming to the gym because of me. And I couldn't remember, I couldn't remember where he heard it. It was because of this. So now we've just dug it up again. Nice. Yeah, Mark will be over this week to give you some stick again, I'm sure. Anyway, Maddie Johns, that's a good answer. Nice. Would yeah. you take your partner with you? Oh, he'd love to come, yeah. Yeah, he'd love to come. Yeah. Would you take him with you? Uh, no. Nah. Screw him. <laughs> I think I've got a conversation without him. Nice. Yeah, I like they that. talk for too out, much. Brad. Shout out, Brad. <laughs> all right, question two. Question two. Who's your favourite athlete of all time? Um, I sort of picked two because I picked one where I am just like a huge fan of someone else. I picked another one in terms of respect of how good they've been in their own profession for such a long period of time. So my all-time favourite, who's someone that I have followed closely for a few years now and I find really inspirational, is Mark Henry. I think he is amazing. I think watching how he has carried over from so many different disciplines of sport and entertainment to be so successful at all those things and also the hardship that he grew up with has been a huge inspiration for me as a lifter um, and just someone that I generally look up to. Um, and again, going into the wrestling side of things, I just love that he ended up in WWE, which is something that I follow and I thought was really cool. So, so guys, sorry for the people who don't know, Mark Henry, American guy. I think he might have the highest like super total. I think he's second. I think he's second. Second yeah. behind Kokhlev or whatever. Um, um, yeah, Kokhlev Misha, the Russian guy. I'm not sure. I think he might be second, but like mm-hmm. crazy. So was really talented weightlifter and powerlifter, but he stopped both to go to go do WWE. No, he just went strongman first. Went strong oh, strong yeah, his gimmick was the strongest man in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but did I thought win, that was on the basis. Did he of win world strongest man? Yes, did he? Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. Oh my goodness! So, yeah. so he did weightlifting, then powerlifting, then strongman. So he yeah. never then really gave any of them that long, and he was world class at all of them. Yeah. Um, what was the hardship he grew up with? I didn't know about that. Um, just like being, I guess, like a, um, just an African, like Western African guy in America, like just 
you know, just poverty that he grew up in. I think he didn't have his father when he grew up, I believe. It was just, like, a single mum that looked after him. Um, I think just, yeah, he has a lot of docos and that online that I've watched, and it's just unbelievable to see, you know. I guess anyone, you know, living in poverty back then, you know, he didn't have the access to gyms and facilities that we do. He was quite a big child, so, you know, being bullied through school and the stuff that he went through is just really cool to listen to, so, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. Okay, question number three. Which movie or television character do you most resemble? Oh, this is the one that was the hardest. Um, I, in terms of looks, I couldn't really, I didn't really know. Um, I did some research, though, and I found, like, <laughs> this Russian tennis player that I sort of looked like, and I was like, I'll go Who's with that? that for looks. Her name's Maria Kirklenko. Kirklenko. Is she so playing funny. now? No, I don't know. I don't think so. K-U-R or K-I-R? K-I-R. Kirklenko. Kirklenko. Kirklenko anyway. tennis. Kirilenko. Oh, uh, I've got Andre. No, that's a basketball player. <laughs> oh, Maria Kirilenko. Yeah. Oh. Oh, Maria Kirilenko. Okay, very different thing. I found there's another guy <laughs> whose name is Kirilenko who plays basketball. Yeah, yeah Andre Kirilenko. Yeah, I know. Oh, you know who that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you should go way back. Like her. <laughs> no, yeah. I love basketball. Were there, any, were there any Taekwondo athletes that you looked like? No, I don't think so. I wasn't your classic taekwondo. I think a lot of people who... Well, I didn't do taekwondo. I did karate. Oh, sorry. Very very (laughs) similar. Similar, right? So we have a guy we work with at Lyft who was like an Olympic-level judo athlete. He missed two Olympic Games because of injury. How terrible is that? He spent a decade training for the Olympics. And I've been talking to him about judo for probably two or three years now. I've known him quite a while. And the other day, and like the other day, like three months ago, um, I was asking whether he would teach myself and Alex and my colleague Brandon some judo. And he said yes. And I just immediately said something about how like Brandon would try and wrestle me, but I was just going to strike him and like kick him and all and like punch him and all this shit. And he was like, you have no idea what the sport is, do you? <laughs> and I was like, not at all. I, I thought judo was the was like like basically MMA. Apparently it's not. <laughs> it's and not. then, then I like backpedaled and I was like, oh, whoops, judo's the one with the sticks, right? Where you hit each other. Kendo? Is that Kendo? I don't even know. Anyway, <laughs> I've got no idea about martial arts. Judo, you throw each other around. What actually grapple. is judo? It's like wrestling. Grappling, yeah. It's like grappling and throws, yeah. Haven't you seen Brewer eventually, after this incident, after, the, after this incident, he brought in, he's got like a mannequin, but it's a weighted mannequin that he practices throws and stuff on. Have you seen it? weighs like 40 kilos or something and it's literally like exactly a mannequin and so you walk past the gym and he'll be like hurling it over his shoulder and slamming it on the floor and stuff and it actually just looks like he's beating the shit out of somebody who's in like rigor mortis after a small child just throwing him around the gym it's it's really funny anyway so so we've gone are we gonna call this are we gonna call this Kirilenko tennis player a movie character no no what about okay what about just in terms of character who do you think Um, you resemble you don't watch much TV, do you? No, I'm movies. not cultured at all. Um, as a child, I don't know if you guys remember Dakota Fanning, younger. So yeah. when I was younger, I was, like, really white blonde. Like, I was classic, looked like a little Russian girl, and I looked very similar to Dakota Fanning when I was younger. But now I don't know. We'll take Dakota Fanning. Yeah, that'll do. That's, cool. a, that's a good answer. Done. Okay, question four. <laughs> <laughs> question four. Your life's being made into a montage. What music would you set it to? Um, Life is a Highway. Rascal Flats. Not bad. Yeah. Your life is a highway. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I'm just constantly, yeah, on a highway. No, no, no. So, there we go. <laughs> I'm going to put that in the... With the drums out, with the guitar out. I might put that in the playlist at Lyft, but like five times, just put it in a number of times so I can see Put them in a row. Quick at you. Five in a row. Ooh. That and then Shake It by Metro Station 30 oh, times in a row. <laughs> what do you think about that? And then Wonderwall at the end. 
every time you pull a guitar out and people are like oh play us a song just start Wonderwall and see them all leave and then you can go, go play for yourself um, Jess thanks so much for joining us it's been a really good episode I've learned heaps um, your last job is to tell everybody where they can find you where they can contact you for coaching and all the rest yeah cool um, so I guess a lot of hopefully you guys um, can find me as Sue Strong on Instagram um, otherwise buy my full name or Sue Strong on Facebook so you spell that yeah it sounds like you're saying like where they dispose of S-E-W-A strong S-E-W-A strong okay cool and that's where to get you for coaching and stuff as well yeah you can contact me message me through either and that's fine too so wicked well thank you so much for joining us next week Alex I'm just announcing it so now we have to do it Guys, we are going to do one of our programming episodes again. Not programming the. We've done about six of them recently. Yeah. One of the ones where we write sample programs. We send them to you. We talk about it on air. So if you're not already on the Weekly Weights mailing list, you can check it out in the description of our Podbean page. There's a hyperlink or in the iTunes description. Copy paste that into the browser. Whack your email in there. Next week, I'll send you out the sample program and Alex and I are going to talk about it. And... Alex we're is going to no, write it. We're going to do a rock off on air. <laughs> All right. We're going to play some paper rock on air. Jess will announce the winner. The loser has to write the program. Right? And then Jess is going <laughs> to tell us what the program is going to be about. No, no, we're not doing that. Nah, no, we'll decide during we'll, the week. <laughs> we'll the... All right, you ready? All right, wait, ready? So like, scissor, paper, then go. Yeah. Okay. Ready? Scissor, scissor paper, paper, rock. Oh, we lost. I always do rock. <laughs> <laughs> For future. I don't think I've ever not done rock. All right, okay. bye, guys. Bye, guys.